The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud with me, Lyndon Kem Karen. Each week we choose our favourite pieces from the magazine and ask our writers to read them aloud. Coming up on the podcast this week, Kate Andrews talks crumbly concrete, overcrowded trains, NHS waiting lists and describes the general air of despair and asks who broke Britain. Katie Balls analyses Keir Starmer's reshuffle and describes the appearance of a new Labour restoration as the party prepares for power. And Max Pemberton outlines the worrying increase of Tourette's and ticks in children, neglected during lockdown and possibly damaged for life. First, it's Kate Andrews. Did Gillian Keegan need to apologise? The Education Secretary thought her ITV interview had ended and she could speak frankly. She insisted the school's concrete crisis was down to everyone else who had sat on their arse. It was a fair point, inelegantly expressed. It's been almost 25 years since the order first went out from Whitehall to inspect schools and hospitals for crumbling reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete. When the roof eventually collapsed at the Singlewell Primary School in Kent in 2018, the government sent out surveys to inquire about building material, but that was largely it. Like lazy homeowners or dodgy landlords, successive administrations assumed the problem would be dealt with by somebody else at a later date. Then, days before the new term started this week, parents of pupils at more than 150 schools were told it wasn't safe for their kids to return. Memories of stay-at-home messaging came back in a flash. The blame can be spread. The SNP in Scotland and the Labour Party in Wales have only just started the RAC discovery process. But Rishi Sunak's government is going to take the brunt of the anger. After 13 years in power, the Tories must accept that voters aren't interested in root causes. Every primary school student sent home this week was born under a conservative-led government. The school roofs issue could be regarded as urgent yet manageable, but to a lot of the public, it seems as if the country is falling apart. The NHS is shambolic. Its waiting list now includes 13% of England's adult population. The sewage system is inadequate, with rivers and coastlines full of effluence. Trains are expensive and overcrowded. Airports descend into chaos at the slightest glitch in airport traffic control software. A recent poll by Lord Ashcroft found that 58% of 2019 Tory voters agreed with the statement, Britain is broken, people are getting poorer, nothing seems to work properly. In the lead-up to the next election, even the party supporters are going to be asking the Tories why the country appears to be in ruins. So far, there's little evidence of a coherent response. This has allowed Labour to argue that Tory cuts mean public sector failure, which is resonating. But this hardly tallies with the numbers overall. State spending is 60% higher in real terms than it was, on average, in the Tony Blair years. Tax receipts account for 36.9% of GDP, a share on course to reach a post-war high by the end of this parliament. The Tories didn't starve the beast, they fed it generously, and will go into the next election taxing and spending more than the governments of Blair and Gordon Brown or when Dennis Healy was Chancellor. 
But where has all the money gone, if not into projects such as public building maintenance, generally considered a core function of the state? The problem is one of short-termism, where investment is repeatedly delayed for the instant gratification of government giveaways and positive headlines. In the final days of Brown's premiership, even the heavy-spending prime minister seemed to realize he'd gone too far. He managed to keep billions in capital investment off the books by signing up to private finance initiative projects, outrageously expensive contracts with private companies to build and maintain hospitals and schools, paid back in hefty fees for 25 or 30 years. On top of that, he racked up a £150 billion deficit in his mishandling of the financial crash. To persuade markets he had a credible plan, he offered up long-term spending as a sacrifice, factoring in big cuts to capital spending from 2011 onwards. Capital spending is the easiest target for the chopping block. Necessary upgrades to public buildings, the rail network, airports, and roads can be covered up for quite some time. It's not so easy to brush aside demands for higher salaries, more GPs, a bigger safety net, and free childcare. Capital spending did indeed drop by 15% in real terms in 2010 to 2011, as Brown intended, but David Cameron implemented. This was the trick of the Cameron and George Osborne government, ring-fence the daily spending of politically sensitive areas while cutting deeper into council funding and capital projects that would take longer to show signs of wear. The cross-party conspiracy of neglect put school upgrades in the firing line, too. The decision under Michael Gove to scrap Labor's Building Schools for the Future investment program, designed to see every secondary state school upgraded at a total cost of £55 billion, was justified by digging into the scheme's problems. Ministers thought the pot of money was being raided by architects, pushing up the cost of building and repairs to unnecessarily high levels. That may be true, but the government failed to replace the scheme with anything like the same level of investment. The result? On current trajectories, the average state school in England will get an upgrade every 400 years. The average lifespan of rack roofing is about 30. In hospitals as well, the strategy was to grab money from the capital budget to beef up day-to-day -day spending. At the height of austerity, more than £4 billion was diverted in this way, according to the King's Fund think tank. Shortly before the pandemic, it reported on the high-risk backlog where repairs are needed to prevent catastrophic failure or deficiencies in safety liable to cause serious injury. It may not be long before one of these failures takes the spotlight, leading to the kind of soul-searching trigger by the concrete crisis. The irony of the austerity era is how much fiscal pain was inflicted in some areas while the size of the state barely reduced. Between 2010 and 2015, the government cut public spending by an average of just 0.15% a year. The money saved by the brutal cuts to long-term infrastructure investment was not returned to the taxpayer or used to reduce public sector net debt, which has doubled to £2 trillion since the Tories came to power. Instead, it's been used to make ever loftier spending commitments, which is what MPs think the public want to hear. Those promises fall under two spending areas, mainly within the Department of Health and the Department for Work and Pensions. These costs now take up over 40% of government spending, with £215 billion spent on health and £254 billion spent on welfare, of which £134 billion is in pension or benefits. The Tories have come to express their loyalty to the NHS by how much cash they throw at day-to-day -day running costs, not by whether patients are better treated. Bribing the elderly with a triple-lock inflation-matching pension pledge has seen the welfare bill skyrocket, as has the cost of keeping 12% of the working-age population on out-of-work benefits.
Even at the height of reform during the Cameron years, pension benefits and NHS spending were off-limits. They have remained so. It has always been the path of least resistance, until, that is, public buildings start caving in. The government has long preferred grandiose, yet half-baked investment projects, which become their successor's problem when it all goes wrong. Osborne's hard hat tour, which promoted HS2, proved the perfect photo opportunity for a project which would reveal its true cost once he was out of office. The project is billions of pounds over budget. Theresa May used her final days in office to push through a legal commitment to net zero carbon emission by 2050, the most expensive pledge any UK Prime Minister has ever taken. In her recent memoir, May writes that this commitment is one of her proudest achievements, a binding target with massive costs, ushered in with minimal consultation, and without the slightest clue as to where future governments might find the money. Perhaps Cameron and May never expected the Tories to stay in power as long as they have. With hindsight, Osborne might have used a tenth of the HS2 budget to upgrade local transport, which would be up and running by now and could be something for his party to claim as a success. May, or Boris Johnson, with his 80-seat majority, might have built some homes, too. Instead, Rishi Sunak now must explain why, 13 years on, schools are unsafe, nothing gets built, and the country's major institutions all seem to teeter on the brink of collapse. Because that's what happens when short-term political decisions pile up. Lots of money is spent, nothing much happens. Sunak can't quite say there's no cash to spend on improvements given the record levels of revenue funneling into the treasury, but he will struggle to reallocate resources and to raise more. As Liz Truss discovered when she tried to usher in what was estimated to be the single largest handout in British history, the energy price guarantee, the markets no longer lend billions to big spending agendas. Normally, it's left-leaning political leaders who want to splurge. Just this week, the SNP's Humza Youssef has been talking about free childcare for Scotland's toddlers, while London Mayor Sadiq Khan has offered free school meals to all of London's children, no matter the family's financial circumstances. But Kiyostama appears to be at least vaguely cognizant that cash has to come from somewhere, which is why he and his shadow chancellor made the politically painful decision earlier this year to roll back their pledge of £28 billion for green investment. They, too, will be hesitant to divert cash from today's giveaways to investments that will pay off long after they leave Westminster. Here, Sunak may have an advantage. The theme of his unsuccessful leadership campaign was that fairy tale spending pledges end badly. His emphasis on candor, attaching price tags to what's being spent, eventually landed him the job in number 10, but has also led to an even higher tax burden than the one imposed on us by Boris Johnson. But Sunak has long been wanting to turn the conversation on to the need to think longer term. He's expected to start emphasizing that in coming months. At next month's Tory conference, he'll argue that it's time to think about investments and reform that will boost prosperity in 10 or 20 years' time. His point will be that only the Tories can clean up the mess left by the Tories. But he must also accept that the mess was not caused by spending restraint. The Conservatives fell for the politics of bribery, a trap which they have not yet managed to escape. That was Kate Andrews. Next is Katie Balls. To understand the political journey of Sir Keir Starmer, look to Liz Kendall. This week, the Blairite and one-time leadership contender was put in charge of Labour's welfare reform policy. Her promotion has upset the party's left-wingers, who already think Starmer is too right-wing on welfare. She'll be more hard-line than Jonathan Ashworth, says one shadow minister in reference to her predecessor. But her real influence started well before she was given a place at Starmer's shadow cabinet table. K. 
Kendall's role in the 2015 contest was to speak hard truths following the party's defeat under Ed Miliband. As Jeremy Corbyn called for a wide debate and Andy Burnham wooed the unions, Kendall defended Harriet Harman, then acting leader, when she said she would not oppose some government welfare cuts, including the cap on household benefit income. Kendall told her party to ditch the fantasy that the British electorate had moved to the left and said she would not prioritise reducing university fees. In the end, her party wasn't ready to hear her message. A rival campaign accused her of being part of the Taliban New Labour, and she won just 4.5% of the membership vote. Her campaign director at the time was Morgan McSweeney, who is now Starmer's most influential aide, shaping campaign priorities and enforcing message discipline ahead of next year's election. The Liz Valida press operation was aided by Matthew Doyle, former press advisor to Tony Blair, who is now Starmer's Director of Communications. All three learnt firsthand the difficulty of doing too much too soon. The return of Kendall to the front bench shows that a new Labour restoration, one that has taken time and patience, has entered its final stages. Starmer has been waiting years to assemble a front bench that he believes is election ready. He won the leadership in the spring of 2020 by appealing to the Labour left through Corbyn-style pledges, which he soon abandoned. He used footage of himself embracing his predecessor in his campaign video. His first shadow cabinet was dominated by the soft left, such as his Len shadow chancellor, Annalise Dodds. In the three years since, Starmer has taken control of the party machinery. Corbyn has been expelled and his supporters have been sacked. Hard left candidates have been blocked from standing. Now that Labour is 20 points ahead in the polls and bookmakers give the party a 90% chance of winning the next election, Starmer is free to do what he likes. The reshuffle is the latest and clearest statement of intent. There are now six around the shadow cabinet table who served in new Labour governments. Three of whom were in the cabinet alongside Blair and Brown. Pat McFadden, a former Blair staffer who boasts to businesses that he was the first shadow minister to be sacked under Corbyn, is the election coordinator. Hilary Benn, who was Secretary of State for International Development under Blair, is in the Northern Ireland brief. Even those who were demoted, such as his former leadership rival Lisa Nandy, or axed, put on a brave face. It shows that Labour senses it's about to win, says a seasoned party figure. McFadden will work on the election campaign, but Brownites are also getting in on the action. Jonathan Ashworth, who was moved to make way for Kendall, is a new paymaster general, a job name even he admits is one of those titles that you have to have constitutionally, but that probably doesn't really involve any paymastering anymore. However, it's not an entirely pointless position. Starmer is acutely aware that after 13 years in opposition, Whitehall experience is an area in which his party is lacking. Ashworth will be reunited with Sue Gray, Starmer's new chief of staff, with whom he last worked when Labour was in government. It's what Francis Moore did for the Tories, says a Labour figure, getting the party ready for government. There are those to the right of Starmer who think that one shadow cabinet member is still too radical, Ed Miliband, who remains in place as shadow energy secretary. The most left-wing politician remaining is Ed, says a figure sympathetic to Corbyn. It's slim pickings. Even Angela Rayner is relatively right-wing. Miliband has a decent working relationship with Starmer, and his supporters in the Commons argue that the party needs him to stop certain people from voting Green. He's also a former cabinet member, and Starmer has few of those. 
We don't always see eye to eye with him on policy, but he brings so much experience and knowledge, explains a party figure. Any reservations about Yvette Cooper have been put aside for the same reason. Not all this will stop others from dwelling on old grievances. There are certain people in the Labour Party who want to relive the battles of the past 20 years, sighs one party figure. They need to move on. As the old Labour tribe returns, Blair himself has bought a man in near checkers and is offering himself as an unofficial advisor. Staff at his institute are likely candidates for future special advisor roles. It's unclear what, if anything, this really means for policy. If Starmer is the next Prime Minister, he will inherit a much more difficult economic situation than Blair did in 1997. Already, shadow Treasury types are talking about spending money more wisely, as they contend their plan not to scare voters with tax rises. Starmer plans to play it safe in the run-up to the election, avoiding anything or anyone that could be used by the Tories to suggest the party is radical or scary. However, Tory strategists are dubious about whether the electorate really has an appetite for reheated Blairism. They hope that if 61-year-old Starmer can be portrayed as stuck in the Blairite past, Rishi Sunak, 43, could be, to use a new Labour term, the changemaker. The only way we're going to win is change, says a senior Tory. For that to work, Sunak needs to come up with a plan to make a dramatic break with his own party's past. That was Katie Balls. And finally... Here's Max Pemberton. Shortly after the first Covid lockdown ended, doctors began to notice something so strange that at first they struggled to explain it. There appeared to be a sudden rise in the number of children being referred with Tourette's syndrome. Tourette's is a rare neurodevelopmental disorder characterised by repetitive involuntary movements or sounds called tics. While mild tics are relatively common in children, specialists suddenly started seeing large numbers of children displaying complex and debilitating symptoms. Dr Alastair Parker, president of the British Paediatric Neurology Association, said in 2021, the most severe tic disorders I have seen over the past 20 years have all presented in the last five months to my practice. Specialists were using the word explosion to describe the numbers they were seeing. There were reports of adolescent psychiatry units that would expect to see four or five new cases a year, recording that number in a week. Even stranger, even though Tourette's is usually more common in boys, young girls accounted for most new cases. A paper published in The Lancet earlier this year found a more than fourfold increase in the disorder among young women. This bizarre phenomenon suggested that something was happening that wasn't following the usual pattern, that wasn't purely neurological. It became apparent that the COVID lockdowns had created a perfect storm. The exact cause of severe tic disorders like Tourette's has long been debated. It is likely there are genetic factors and parts of the brain controlling movement are involved but undoubtedly stress, anxiety and depression play a role. What doctors uncovered was that for several years before the pandemic, an online community had been growing where those with Tourette's had been posting videos of their tick attacks as a form of support for one another. What happened during the pandemic was that young people stuck indoors for months on end watching social media like TikTok had stumbled across these clips this, combined with the severe stress and anxiety of lockdown, 
fueled a stratospheric rise in cases. The more people developed ticks and posted it online, the more people saw it and developed ticks themselves. Severe tick disorders are rare, so it's no surprise the sudden explosion of children presented with them got attention. But the rise is just one manifestation of the disastrous effect our response to the pandemic had on the mental health of an entire generation. The rise in Tourette's is relatively easy to study, but the more general impact on children's mental health is far harder to quantify. For every child referred to mental health services with depression, there are many more sitting at home, alone in their rooms, withdrawing from the real world. They struggle at school and miss out on opportunities. These cases are often not picked up by studies, yet they represent the shaming legacy of lockdown. The number of children missing school has doubled since before the pandemic. Lee Elliott Major, Professor of Social Mobility at the University of Exeter, says that there has been a post-pandemic tidal wave of school absences and warns that the seriousness of this cannot be overstated. Not turning up for school is the surest way of ruining your future life prospects. In July, the Institute of Fiscal Studies and UCL published the first study of its kind into the impact of lockdowns on children. It found that the effect of lockdowns extended beyond lost academic progress. Emotional development and social skills were harmed in just under 50% of children. The rates of referrals for children with eating disorders has doubled. There are rising numbers of children self-harming. Over the pandemic's course, the number of young people seeking help for mental health problems soared, jumping from an estimated 12.1% of children in 2017 to 17.8% in 2022. In study after study, we have seen how children, especially those between 7 and 10, bore the brunt of our lockdown. And that's before we even factor in the horrific rise in child murders and cases of abuse thanks, if we are brutally honest, to social care and health professionals abandoning many vulnerable children to the mercy of drug-addicted or violent parents. Behind closed doors, while the metropolitan elite, who so vociferously called for harsher lockdowns, sat in their gardens having Zoom cocktails with their family, these children had to endure torment and torture. At the beginning of August this year, the NSPCC warned that COVID restrictions at the height of the pandemic were used as a cover by abusers to hurt children as the usual safeguarding methods at schools and clubs were absent or moved online. Some 20,000 children are still unaccounted for, inexplicably vanished during lockdown. Many others were simply neglected. Some not only failed to progress, but actually regressed. Teachers spoke about children returning to school, barely able to hold a knife and fork. Their literacy had deteriorated and some were even wearing nappies again. And despite all the emerging evidence of the heartbreaking damage we have done, there are still those who insist we should have locked down earlier and harder. They cling to the belief that a blanket lockdown was the right thing to do, even though it became evident very early on that children were the least at risk from the virus and had the most to lose from lockdown. And it was all for nothing anyway. A meta-analysis led by John Hopkins University, showed that lockdown restrictions caused just 0.2% reduction in virus deaths. What have we done? 
we panicked and put in place a social experiment never tried before. Teachers unions, the NHS, social workers who should have been championing children turned their backs on them and all the time police busied themselves handing out penalties for people sitting on park benches. That was Max Pemberton drawing to a close this week's edition of Spectator Out Loud. If you've enjoyed these articles and would like more, why not pick up a copy of the magazine? I'm Lyndon Kem Karen. Thanks so much for listening and please do join us again next week.